Welcome back to another episode of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your Conspiracy Skeptic, Carl Mamer. And my guest today is, uh, well, I don't think I have actually have many fellow Canadians. You, you're, you're Canadian, right, Scott? That's right. Okay, yeah, Scott, uh, uh, Scott Birdall. Uh, I pronounced your last name okay? Yeah, that's fine. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, Scott. And uh, you're, you're, you're like in the most Canadian part of Canada, aren't you? Uh, yeah, well, I, I grew up in the Yukon anyway. Um, I'm in Vancouver now, but, uh, oh, okay. 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 Well, that's, that's pretty Canadian too, but, uh, all right. Okay. Oh, so you're not actually in, uh, in, uh, in Whitehorse. Not at the moment. No. Oh, okay. All right. And, um, and, uh, do you, do you, do you still work up there or are you working out of Vancouver now? Uh, right now I'm based in Vancouver, but, uh, yeah, I still do a lot of work up in the Yukon and, uh, it's, it's still home. It's hard to leave a place like that. Great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, it's kind of a, a bit of a convoluted story, but um, as I kind of mentioned in my last podcast, I'm working on a kind of a book about Canadian conspiracy theories, um, tentatively titled either the 20 greatest Canadian conspiracies of all time, or um, you can have my health card when you pry it from my cold, dead hands, colon. Uh, so sort of an introduction to Canadian conspiracies for Americans or something like that. The, the, the general idea sort of being um, the book, it's uh, it, it's kind of written for like an American audience. The the idea being that, uh, you know, when Americans typically after some crazy election always sort of pronounce, you know, I'm moving to Canada. Kind of the idea that, you know, Canada is like, I call it the uh, sort of their escape hatch to sanity. And, and, and I just want to sort of let people know that it's like... Everything's relative, you know. Yeah, it's a little, but we've we've got our own wackiness here. Yeah, we certainly do. Wow. Okay. And uh, you're um, you're you're, sir, don't don't mind the compliment. But you're 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 like a pretty smart guy, right? Um, on paper, I guess. <laughs> on paper, yeah. You're like you went to uh, you went to MIT. Ah, uh, that's right. Right. Okay. Right. And uh, did you you got you got a you got a graduate degree from MIT? Uh, that's right. I studied uh, scientific well, science writing there, actually, and that's uh, where that thesis came from. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. And and, and you you work as a as a geologist now. That's right. Yeah, I grew up prospecting up in the Yukon, so yeah, very Canadian sort of upbringing. Yeah. If, yeah. if you think of Canadian in the 1890s, anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I kept on uh, kept on prospecting. I studied geology in addition to writing at MIT and. Uh, after actually after I came out of the writing program, I kind of jumped into this gold rush that was going on up north, uh, all over the world really, but focused with a focus in the Yukon, kind of 2010 to 2012, and I've mm. been working in the industry ever since. Okay, great, yeah, yeah, and um, and you studied in Saudi Arabia? Is that, did I read that right? That's right, yeah. Um, I did go back to school for a bit. There's been sort of a market doldrum in exploration for the past few years. Um, I went back to Saudi. Oh, I went back to school in Saudi Arabia. There was a new university built there just on the banks of the Red Sea by the late King Abdullah. And uh, he had this vision of bringing back uh, kind of the the global centers of learning that used to be in the Middle East. Um, He wanted to reestablish one of those. And uh, yeah, it, it seemed like a very interesting place to spend a few years, and it, it absolutely was. So. Wow, okay. Yeah. And, and one of the, and the way I sort of stumbled on your work is well, one of the chapters I, I'm working on, um, sort of an interesting period in, uh, I guess, Canadian history and I guess sort of world history is in the late 70s, uh, sort of a, a Soviet uh, satellite, nuclear satellite, crashed over, uh, it was with the Northwest Territories? That's right, yeah. Yeah, great. Great, Great Slave Lake, or was it Great Bear Lake, or do I got those names? It's Great uh, Slave Lake, I think. I think so. I um, I'm not totally up to speed on that anymore. It's been a little while since I was researching that myself. Right, right, yeah. Your your paper itself you wrote in 2000, and if I if I this is 2019, and so I kind of contacted you out of the blue, and you're like, uh, interesting, but I mean that was 18 years ago. I have to I have to look into what I wrote again. Yeah, well, the paper I wrote in 2010, so it's it's relatively fresh, at least on that time scale. But still, yeah, nine oh, years. Oh, right, right, right. Yes. Nine years is still a, a. I had to do a bit of review to see what I had actually put down on yeah. the page. So, right, the events in your paper actually took place at year 2000, right? Right. That's right. Yeah, just after the millennium. 
Right, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so this was, um, right, so right in the late 70s, this sort of uh, uh, nuclear Soviet spy satellite just basically kind of broke up all over uh, Northwest Territories and sort of rained radioactive debris all over uh, basically sort of, a, I don't know, it was like tens of thousands of square miles. And uh, and it took took like months in like the coldest weather possible to find this stuff. And uh, I don't know how much, I think it cost Canada. I think we eventually got about $3 million out of the Soviets in compensation, but I think the real operation cost was like, like five times that or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recall something about that. Um, I, yeah, I wish I could help you with the details of that. At one point I knew this sort of uh, quite well, but uh, yeah, I, I don't believe what this, uh, what the Soviets or what the Russians gave Canada um, even came close to covering what it cost to find these bits of debris and, and clean them all up. Yeah, exactly. um, uh, yeah, the first one, the first bit, I think, and you might know better than me, but the first bit was found by an outdoorsman, and that kind of alerted searchers to the debris field where they actually needed to look for this stuff, and, uh, and they found quite a few pieces, including mm -hmm. one that was... Uh, one that was radioactive enough it would have killed anyone who who would just walked up to it so uh right, right, yeah, yeah. good to have the experts out yeah. it is interesting i mean even this is sort of i mean it's obviously way before the internet but it you know word eventually did get around pretty quickly that you know you know soviet satellite had crashed over the you know the northwest territories and you know just don't go around picking up odd looking junk right mm -hmm. yeah 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 and it was sort of funny too because because i mean like you know back then uh, like Canada didn't really have much of a, you know, sort of a nuclear. So, and I apologize for the way I say nuclear. It's just, it's just <laughs> I, the way I say it. I know it sounds like George W. Bush and, 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 but to me, when I say that word, it sounds like a, like normal people say it. So I, again, I'm just going to apologize. I get a lot of emails about the way I say nuclear, but anyways, yeah. So, uh, um, I guess, yeah, so Canada didn't have much of a response team and, and, uh, like the Americans were kind of, the Americans were kind of, primed for this mission but they had always figured it would be like you know nevada and stuff like that they never thought they would have to go all the way to the canada's northwest territories and like minus mm -hmm. 30 you know celsius which is probably about there's some point where celsius and fahrenheit kind of meet on you know in in the negative scale and uh yeah minus 40 it was at minus 40 where they meet so yeah so when you yeah when you hear minus 30 just it's it's cold. It's still it's cold regardless. So so yeah, yeah. and um and uh, yeah yeah. So then uh, so they, they they sort of came up up uh, up to the Northwest Territories and after uh, you know kind of figuring things out they they eventually sort of found most of the satellite. Now, do you? I don't know if you you know, but um, uh, I mean they never actually sort of found the the, the core of, of the reactor. But do, do they? What do they think the fate of the core was? We, we, did you ever encounter that? Uh, no, I, I, I don't recall, actually. Um, and, yeah, I wasn't aware that they, they hadn't found the core. If I was, it's yeah, it's been too long since I okay, was yeah. researching into this. Yeah. Um, but, no, I imagine with, the, with a radioactive core sitting out there, I mean, it, the half-life has got to be fairly long. It would still be sitting out there. It would still be quite dangerous. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because that's the thing. I mean, it either, it either burnt up or it... Like it just fell, and I, I guess that they had done some calculations, and it's like there, there's no way it, like it could never have, sort of, it would never have been hot enough to sort of you know burn through the, through you know like like three feet of ice and and you know sink to the bottom of the lake. But I mean you know it could be, it could be you know uh, sort of rolled into a cave or, or something like that. So there there is a possibility, probably not a good possibility, but there's still like you know a hundred pounds of you know yeah yeah. Highly, you know, highly reactive uranium with like a ten thousand year half life still up in Canada's Northwest Territories, waiting for someone to stumble across it. Okay, well, yeah. good to yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, another thing to look out for when yeah. you're out in the bush out there. Exactly. If you, so, if you ever do go, you know, and everything else. Yeah, ever do go prospecting out there, just you know, yeah, watch for it. But uh, but uh, these stories actually kind of inter intermesh because um, one of the, I mean, one of the really curious things about the what I believe it was in 1979 when it went January 1979 when it, it fell is that. Um, and this again, this was sort of before internet and 
Alex Jones and all that sort of stuff. That 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 the uh, the people of the Northwest Territories they were kind of like, yeah, you know, like okay, and they they just they just kind. Of, I mean, obviously they were worried, but you know, there weren't a lot of like wacky conspiracy theories, and um, mm-hmm. and the people of the Northwest Territories pretty much, you know, I guess. I, I don't know. I, I, I've never been up there, but I can just imagine between polar bears and the weather, you're pretty much used to, you know, things out to kill you. Right. So, <laughs> you, you know, uh, that just it's just one more thing to look out for, I guess, in, in, in January. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, but but then sort of ro- rolling forward, I mean, now by the when um, there was another um, uh, what well, wasn't a satellite this time, but it was it was it was a, it was a meteor. And it was was the how do you pronounce the tag? Uh, Tagish Lake. The ta- yeah, the Tagish Lake Fireball, and uh, and and that sort of fell over Yukon, which is kind of that's closer to Alaska, Yukon, where Northwest Territories is kind of like what you know, sort of central, north central Canada. If I get my geography right, correct me on my geography if I'm. If I'm, if no, I'm... you you got it. It's a it's a confusing naming system where Northwest is North Central and the yeah. Yukon is Northwest. So oh, I, I never noticed that actually. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, but um, yeah. And so, the, but but the, when this thing it was in the 2000s when it did uh, year 2000 when it would that this meteor sort of kind of went sort of screaming over uh, over the heads of people in the Yukon. Uh, it, it did sort of actually start some conspiracy theories but there's kind of a deeper story and uh so that's a whole lot of setup sorry scott but i'll let you kind of get into it so what uh and you you were there as a as a, as a boy right when this happened that's right yeah i was uh in high school at the time and um unfortunately i didn't see it but uh the the fireball itself one thing that might have set it apart from the northwest territories event uh was that it was very visible and mm-hmm. um kind of spectacularly so. Uh, it lit up on uh, a January morning, uh, you know, still night, people commuting to work into Whitehorse, and the sky for about 10 seconds just erupted in this blinding light with this fireball streaking across the sky. And um, so it was it was no secret right from the start. People knew something had happened, and people uh, wanted to know what had happened, and uh, people were in awe of this sight, and it, it left this contrail that glowed so Although I didn't see the fireball, I saw this contrail, this kind of uh, lingering, glowing plume of material from this meteor uh, just hanging up in the upper atmosphere. And it was high enough up that even though it's still night on the Earth, it's sort of morning is is approaching and uh, it's up in sunlight up there. So you're just seeing this sunlit cloud amidst the starry sky. It was actually quite a surreal sight. Um, And so there was a lot of attention on it right from the start. And this is, I mean, this is sort of a post X Files, you know, internet era. Like, I mean, uh, what, what were some of the? You, you had a teacher that was sort of thought it was like a secret mil, U.S. military test. Yeah, I actually had a couple of teachers that that came to that idea. Um, and yeah, that was sort of a uh, a pretty common sentiment around that time. Uh, I, I think a. For the most part, the the broader public accepted, okay, this was a meteorite, this was really interesting, or it was a meteor. Um, people didn't know if it was a meteorite or not yet, that is, whether it hit the ground or not. Um, but for the most part, I mean, experts were called right away. Uh, you know, on the on the morning radio shows that morning, they were already interviewing uh, meteor, meteoricists who were <clears throat> basically, who understood from the witnesses' descriptions what had happened and were saying what had happened, that a big... Uh, bolide, uh, a big kind of lightweight meteorite had uh, had exploded in the sky. But um, yeah, amongst a minority of people, uh, and certainly a vocal minority at the time, uh, a lot of people were quite into this idea that this was somehow, and specifically it seemed to be America's fault, uh, <laughs> and that there was this, there did happen to be a weapons test in the South Pacific around the same time. Right. Uh, and a lot of people put those pieces together and something about, you know, it was, I think it was an interceptor missile test that had failed. It, you know, it's, it's a pretty commonplace thing to have a, a missile defense system fail to, I mean, it's a hard thing to build, uh, fail to hit its target, but that had been kind of misinterpreted that maybe this rogue missile had somehow 
gone. Maybe there was a nuclear warhead aborted and maybe it had come streaking down over the Yukon. Oh, and um, so there were people who were kind of uh, up in arms about that. And uh, a few months after the event, actually, I had, a, had one teacher in particular who kind of asked who thought the Tigers Lake fireball was a meteorite or a meteor and who thought that it was a failed U.S. weapons test. And, you know, for those of us who actually kind of were paying attention enough to even answer the question, a few of us, most of us put up our hands that it was a, it was a meteor. Um, and then he, he kind of went into this rant and, <laughs> uh, and it was sort of a mix of just anti U.S. imperialism and, and so on. So, I mean, you know, whatever his beliefs are, that's, that's okay. But, um, but in the end, then he kind of brought this whole spiel home and, uh, and then asked the class again, now, how many of you actually think that this was a meteorite? And, uh, I was the only one who put up my hand. Oh, it was geez, kind of, okay. it was kind of an interesting moment. I think, you know, to be fair, a lot of kids probably just didn't want to make a stand on the point, but, right, yeah. I, um, yeah, kind of put my hand up to the sort of light ridicule of, of others and some strange glances. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was an interesting moment. I think that was probably a moment that solidified this as, you know, an interesting topic to pursue nine years later, 10 years later when I'm working on this thesis. Right. Okay. And then this, what this was for you, this was your, your thesis for your, uh, your, your MIT degree. That's right. Yeah. This was for that science writing program. Okay, great. Yeah. 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 Cause I, I, bl I believe in the, 2000s the early 2000s they like they were going to there was a, at least a plan to sort of put a sort of limited abm site in alaska kind of i mean we we think of maybe some of us are you know young enough that we think this whole north korea thing is a recent development but i mean even back mm -hmm. during you know the clinton administration people were like worried about you know what if the north koreans get a you know get a nuclear weapon and uh you know and they sort of you know take out Seattle or San Francisco or something like that. That that was that was that was a concern even you know twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not. Uh, yeah, I mean it's not like it's a completely uh, unfeasible idea that this that you know a U.S. missile could kind of come streaking over Canadian airspace someday. So oh for sure uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you you might not be old enough to remember during the the Trudeau era where they would uh, they they were testing uh, letting U.S. test um, cruise missiles over over Canada's north. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I guess Canada's. I mean, Canada's north is obviously geographically similar to you know what the cruise missiles would have to traverse over like the you know the Soviet Union and uh, so yeah. So so Trudeau kind of let uh, let the U.S. test kind of cruise missiles over over our, hmm. our territory, which is weird because I, Trudeau was kind of a you know he liked to hang out with uh, Fidel Castro and stuff like that and and uh, so I think to kind of also you know you know, appease uh, the Americans. He, he, he also let, let them test, you know, cruise missiles and stuff. So kind of played both sides of the, uh, the, the geopolitical spectrum. He, he was an yeah. interesting character, but that, 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 not, that was not Justin Trudeau. I'm speaking of uh, his father, of Pierre Elliott yeah. Trudeau. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but, but this, this, um, this meteorite actually, I mean, well, one of the things I found interesting in your paper, just to even go back, back a bit in history is, is, um, how long it actually took science to convince, or at least science, some scientists to convince other scientists that meteors were rocks from space, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's, a, that's an interesting story itself. And so that's where, that's where you know, you have to give the, uh, in, in this case, and in a lot of cases, the conspiracy theorists some credit. It's, you know, people are proposing different ideas for mm -hmm. an observed event. And, um, and, you know, a rock falling from the sky for for all of our previous models of, you know, the cosmos, this is a very strange and inexplicable event that, you know, what is solid and underfoot and is always there. And if you throw a rock up, it comes right back down right. just to have these things falling out of the sky. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until about, uh, about 200 years ago that scientists finally started to catch on. And it was really through a series of serendipitous, uh, meteorite falls and, uh, and researchers working kind of in the right place in the right time, interviewing people and, um, yeah, interviewing people and kind of piecing together that these accounts actually made sense, that these rocks were actually coming from the sky. Whereas, you know, before, if you look at various cultures around the world, you had all kinds of different ideas as to 
where these things could have possibly come from, um, generated in thunderstorms, the tears of uh, the tears of gods, um, <laughs> menstruation of flying witches, and oh, wild things. So. I like the one idea where there's a more naturalistic explanation is volcanoes throwing rocks really high in the sky and then them coming, raining back down. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good, uh, I guess, sort of um, maybe more down-to-earth sort of way of thinking about it. But yeah, again, still, that's quite, would take quite the blast. Wow. And uh, in the... Um... So when you know some of it, the pieces actually did come down, and that that almost in itself kind of like, I mean, not sort of, kind of fed into the conspiracy theory. Where, um, um, if, if I can just sort of sort of tell your story a, a little bit, where I and correct me if I'm wrong, where uh, you know they sort of realized that some uh, some of the meteorite came down and and it would be you know incredibly valuable to science, but there's also people out there that you know will just pay crazy amounts of money for a meteorite right and and so it was a bit of a like a race to, to find these pieces yeah there was a bit of a, a sort of a gold rush that happened there um in terms of trying to find these uh these fragments of the meteorite and uh they were it fell in quite a remote location and one outdoorsman uh who well, actually has a family uh residence way out on this lake where his family has lived for most of the past century, um, he was the one who stumbled across it in the first place, and he was able to collect uh, a lot of this in, in very pristine conditions. So he did a very good job of kind of preserving this uh, unprecedented scientific specimen, this really rare meteorite, and still frozen. Um, but yeah, once it, he kept it, he figured he had got all of it um, initially, and he kind of kept it secret. He didn't want a big stampede out to this remote part of the wilderness. Uh, but word trickled out, and uh, well, first th he did. He contacted some scientists and had them come up and take a look around. But word got out as well. Uh, a paper in Alaska ended up publishing an article and had the wrong location. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, then then people started looking around. Uh, meteorite hunters. There are actually people who go and they do. They deal both for private collectors and for scientists mm -hmm. as well. Um, but yeah, there are people whose you know whose job it is is just to respond to these meteorite calls and go and try to buy meteorites off local collectors, and then they sell them either to yeah to collectors of the scientific community. And so those people were up north, and uh, people were out kind of following up on that Alaskan article, going to the wrong lake looking for <laughs> meteorites. And um, yeah, there was there was quite a bit of searching, and and for good reason. Um, it turned out to be quite an interesting specimen and uh, quite a valuable bit of rock too. Yeah, for sure. Cause it, what's it? Is it how do you pronounce that? Chondrite. Chondrite. Yeah. Chondrite. Yeah. 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 So what was it? It was. I mean, it was a very like it was a rare event, right? This finding this meteorite. Because I mean, you can find parts of meteorites, but to have one that sort of you're observing it, it comes down, and and you're able to collect it without basically human hands touching it, right? That's that's a very rare combination. Yeah, so I mean, uh, right now NASA has a uh, a sample return mission headed out to I think it's called Osiris Rex, headed out to an asteroid that's kind of in a near Earth orbit, uh, and it the goal of this mission is in a few years. It's I think it's in orbit around the asteroid right now, and eventually it'll sample it and uh, bring it back to Earth, mm -hmm. and that'll be sort of the first uh, apart from lunar samples brought back by the Apollo program. That'll be the first sample return mission we have from like a deep space rock right. uh and apart from that the only material we have of you know the entire cosmos is is meteorites and um and most of these have been sitting on desert floors or wherever they're found for um for hundreds or thousands of years and they've passed through many hands and been hit by magnets and they've been exposed to the elements and uh whereas this meteor not only this meteorite, this Hegish Lake meteorite, not only did it fall onto a frozen lake, but uh, there were enough eyewitness accounts and, um, you know, photographs of the contrail. And there was even a, a one security camera video that showed sort of the way the shadows moved that researchers were able to track where in the asteroid belt it had come from. So they were able to trace sort of its trajectory. Um, and then the, the material itself happened to be uh, a rock from before the solar system, essentially, um, a lot of pre-solar grains, and uh, that 
kind of the most primitive material as the solar nebula started to condense before the sun even turned on, um, when we were just a cloud of dust in space, the remnants of old supernova um, just coming together, that first kind of lightweight material starting to coalesce, that's what this is. And, um, and so to find that at just sitting there frozen on a lake, the thing is also the fireball, though it was pretty spectacular and very bright and hot on the surface, it didn't actually heat up the meteor. So when these things enter the atmosphere, they only glow just sort of the, the outer very small crust is what's growing, glowing. It just heats up a millimeter or two. And, uh, and inside you still have a frozen space rock that's been frozen for, in this case, probably four and a half billion years. Right, yeah. Yeah, because you, you'd think this rock's just like molten, but I mean, yeah, right, the, 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 the outside kind of burns away, but, you know, the, the rock's been obviously been in deep space where it's it's not, it, it's it's warmer than Toronto is right now, and or, or it's colder than Toronto and, uh, you know, Whitehorse and places like that, but it's it's pretty cold out there in deep space, right? And, and, and it exactly. stays cold when it still gets back to Earth. So, it, yeah, it, by the time it touches down, right, it's not, it's actually not that hot, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, the outer rind will have uh, will have melted. It, causes, it creates a little um, shell called a fusion crust, but it's very, very thin. And, uh, and you know, by the time that it's fallen all the way through the atmosphere, especially on a winter day in the Yukon, um, you know, it's going to be down to room temperature, the ambient air temperature. So it's going to be minus 20, minus 30, whatever the temperature is that day on the surface. And inside, it'll still be even colder, um, depending on you know what uh what part of the asteroid it came from what the temperature was of the of the meteorite well yeah i thought one of the interesting things too about why make what made this meteorite so important is right is because you you can find other meteorites but as you said they're passing through human hands and 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 so so if you kind of want to test the rocks for say like you know are is there any organic material it's you know it's it's much you can always say well you know is that contamination right or is it is it something that came in from space but uh but 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 the uh the the Tigish lake meteorite right it just you know there's there's a good chain of evidence that okay this n was n never touched by human hands so if we find you know sort of you know amino acids or some sort of organic material then we know it's not from contamination Exactly, and so that's why that's why this Tagish Lake meteorite has proven so important so far is that yeah you do have that good sort of chain of command that nobody touched this this came from space uh, and then we have found those things so uh, like you say amino acids um, found a substance called formic acid which is a pretty complex organic molecule that's um, it's a substance in like bee stings and ant bites and mm. things like that uh, and so and this material is what was floating around before our solar system. You know, this is floating around in interstellar space, so it it actually has some pretty profound implications in terms of what the what the cosmos really might look like in terms of its potential habitability for life. If you have these sort of you know uh, pretty advanced organic molecules floating around deep in space, it's uh, quite an incredible find. Right. Yeah, I was, I was sort of you know, researching this. I uh, came across it might have been a live science article sort of talking about it as well because it, it took about i mean it took um you know they picked it up in say 2000 right but it took about really took about i mean took about nine years before you know the, the paper started to get published and refereed and all that sort of stuff and then sort of the comments at the bottom of one of the article was something like like see i knew this was you know this is proof that aliens have you know seeded human beings or something like that yeah. like you know just kind of jumping way beyond like amino acids or therefore or you know see proof of alien ancient aliens have seeded human beings or something and it's, yeah it's a little, yeah it's a little premature to declare that i think yeah i think that's that's a good example of one conspiracy kind of another wave coming in you know you have finally you have the scientific research coming out just showing everyone that this is not a cover-up this is actually a meteorite here are the interesting things we found about it and then you know the ne next wave jumps on okay then this is proof of xyz in this case yeah, yeah. uh aliens seeding life on earth so i did like in your uh your your your, your thesis where um the i think some of the scientists you know hunting for for the meteorite you know they, they also kind of help i think maybe contribute a bit to any kind of conspiracy theories where they're they're obviously they don't want to tell people we're hunting for the meteorite because you know then the rock hunters will 
get out there. But so they, ha you know, they're they're, well, they're they're trying to bring in refrigeration equipment or something, and and they're they're making up these various stories about what they're doing. And they had, um, yeah, well, they were just looking for containers. They had a few freezers. Um, well, first out at uh, out at a, a place on Tagish Lake, and then in a nearby town called Atlin, and okay. uh, and then in you know a friend's game freezer uh, from from the outdoorsman who had found the meteorite in the first place. And so it kind of kept ballooning out, but then they, they were running out of, you know, ways to collect these things and, uh, and places to put them. And at one point they bought out the Tupperware at, uh, at the hardware store in, in Atlin and, uh, <laughs> you know, and they're just saying, Oh yeah, we're just going out ice fishing and okay. Why are you buying all of our Tupperware? And yeah, yeah there were, there were a few scenes, you know, I, I got the, a lot of the researchers were nice enough to give me their notes and, Reading through them, there were some interesting kind of allusions to the conspiracy sentiment that was pretty prevalent at the time. Um, the one researcher uh, from the University of uh, Western Ontario, he was looking at reconstructing the path of the fireball through the sky. Right. Uh, so he was looking for uh, security footage, you know, and um, just like the, the one video that was used where it's just shadows on the street mm -hmm. um, used to reconstruct, you know, that you go back and measure the specifics of that scene and you look at, okay, where would something have to travel to make these shadows? He was hoping to get more of these um, from around Whitehorse, but the uh, the technician that he talked to from a security company was convinced that he was working for some government agency and you know, lying about who he was, and he wouldn't give him the, uh, wouldn't give him the footage, and it was on this one-month uh, automatic delete cycle mm. just for storing old data. So this was just a couple of days. He got to town three days before... Uh, well, on the February 15th, so he, and the, the meteorite was on January 18th, so we had three days to try to convince this guy otherwise and wasn't able to. So all this potentially very valuable footage uh, was deleted because perhaps because this guy thought that he was uh, working for some secret government agency covering up something. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's sort of like you know, kind of in in sort of skepticism. It's you know, this is rhetorical question, like, well, what's the harm, right? And uh, I mean, this you know, small example, but yeah, it's sometimes you know, these you know, when you you first reach for this conspiracy, it it, it can have these interesting sort of little add-on effects. You know, like um, what sort of one of my frequent guests, um. um Dr. Stuart Robbins, he's, he's an astronomer and he lives in Colorado. He did a really interesting podcast. He d does his own podcast about the, um, there was like flooding out in Colorado and how quickly all these conspiracy theories started developing and they're here to take our guns and, and, you know, people are just trying to bring, get you help, you know, and, you yes. know, and, and people are just thinking like, you know, I know you're these Nazi stormtroopers from FEMA out to take our guns and, and yeah, it can, it can have, you know, it, it can have negative effects. Effects. Yeah, yeah, and one uh, one sort of example of what's the harm is uh, if you think about the you know the reaction that people had. In, uh, the Yukon is a pretty docile place, and mm -hmm. we can swing our weight as much as we want, and we're not going <clears> to <throat> influence global geopolitics very much at all. Right, right. But you know, what if the Tagish Lake fireball had come down over like the India-Pakistan border or something like that, and right. uh, and you have a lot of nervous uh, commandos there with access to nuclear launch codes who are sure that the other side is attacking. And um, yeah, one of the researchers that I talked to, uh, Alan Hildebrand at the University of Calgary, uh, you know, he was saying, forget Armageddon and, and these scenarios. Well, don't forget them. They're still important. But the real danger is uh, the more likely danger with meteorites is that, you know, people are going to mistake what they are and we might react to it the wrong way. And, you know, we're sort of more the problem than they are almost. Wow. Yeah, if I seem to recall in, I don't know when it was, might, might have been the 80s, could even have been the 90s, where um, so U.S. satellites sort of detected this weird flash kind of south of South Africa in the, uh, I think, the Indian Ocean or something. And and they thought maybe it was like a nuclear bomb test. Right about that time, like South Africa was kind of pursuing a bomb, but then they thought, yeah. well, maybe it was the Israelis had sort of contracted with the South Africans to kind of test a bomb, but um, but I think I think the scholars kind of cluster around. I think the idea that it was just like a like a meteorite <laughs> flash on on the satellite, but there, there's yeah. still there's still some question about it. I think did you, did you ever encounter anything about that? Uh, no, no, I didn't come across that. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah, that's another sort of one of those weird things, meteor or uh, 
meteor or a nuclear nuclear bomb test. It's sort of interesting, yeah. but uh, yeah. And um, um, so yeah, so where where did this meteorite end up? It, it sort of found its way into some interesting places. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think most of it now is in a uh, specially built storage facility uh, at the University of Calgary. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sure a few specimens have found their way into various collections, um, but uh, for the most part, a, a lot of material was recovered, both uh, both from the initial fall and then uh, people went back in kind of around April when the uh, when the snow was melting off the lake that it had fallen on and these meteorites were exposed again in the ice and uh, collected more then. So some of that material, at least as of, you know, nine years ago, I'm not really fresh on the story anymore, but, um, you know, a lot of that material is still encased in ice and uh, it's not like there is a rush to go through it all. There's only so much of that material. So meteorologists work pretty carefully with the little bit of material they have. Um, and, you know, there might be someone in 100 years who comes up with an interesting idea of, uh, what, you know, what might, uh, what implications this meteorite might have, and they might need a piece of it, and, you know, it hopefully will still be there for them to be able to test those ideas. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because we sort of think, like, you know, we, I guess well, we, don't, we don't think, but, you know, the, the layperson might think, yeah, we just know everything we need to know how to test this, but we don't sort of think, like, yeah, well, 100 years from now, we still have some of that around. Like, like you know, it's like, Think of like, you know, Jack the Ripper, right? If they had just preserved, you know, certain fluids or DNA way, way back then thinking, yeah. you know, who knows, you know, 200 years from now, DNA and yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you, so you're, you're still, you, you, so you, you work as a geologist, right? And, and, um, and that's right. Out of Vancouver. What, what can I, can I ask you what, what sort of, what, are you working for a mining, a mining company or? Sort of uh, pre-mining uh, exploration, just looking for uh, for you know the resources uh, for society going down the road, looking for you know the copper we're going to need to build uh, to electrify everything as we're doing and build right. uh, energy sources and um, yeah, just various various materials, gold, silver, tungsten, um, you name it. Well, okay, and um, when you uh, you know uh, you. You know, you're the sort of anti-Americanism you you encountered when you're sort of living up in the Yukon. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the, I mean, depending on which way the wind is blowing. I mean, you know, there there, there is a latent anti-Americanism in in Canada, you know, a, a, a lot, among a lot of people. But uh, you know, I I lived in Seattle for a while, and and when you actually do live in America, right, you kind of go, oh, these are good people, right? Yeah, yeah, um, we're pretty, It's you know, as far as uh, societies go through the globe and, and through time, you know, Canada and the States have have a lot of pretty big similarities, a lot of overlap. Um, not that there aren't differences, but yeah, certainly it's, you get down there and it's easy to, to lump a bunch of people into a group and you get amongst them and find their, their people, they do what they do. Um, I mean, I had even similar experiences going to Saudi Arabia and living there for two years where... Did, did, yeah. did, they, did they did they did they assume you were American at first in, in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, that's a pretty common assumption. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I lived in Korea too, and that was usually sort of like people just assumed you were American. And I always mm -hmm. found that once you told them you were Canadian, it was sort of like, oh, maybe there's somebody more interesting you could be talking to right now. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a real conversation killer at times. And, like, yeah. no, actually, I'm Canadian. Uh, I'm gonna go talk to that German person over there. All. I'll, hmm. I'll be back, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I always found, too, sort of like living abroad, it's like, um, you, you know, I mean, if, you know, imagine there was you, you know, with Canadian sign around your neck, and then there was someone next to you, completely identical person, but, you know, American sign around his neck, that, that, that for the most part, people would find the American version of you a far more interesting person to talk to. And, uh, and uh, but, you know, if the American version of you kind of stepped on their foot and then the Canadian version of you stepped on their foot, people are much more gracious and accepting the Canadian's apology than the, than the American's apology that that's sort of found the, the difference between being Canadian and American. You're, you may not be more interesting, but people are more willing to, you know, forgive your, you know, your cultural faux pas. Whereas mm. if you're American, they kind of like, 
oh, you're just like all these horrible Americans we see all the time and complain about, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I guess I guess people have pretty preconceived notions of, of what Americans are, you know, wherever they are in the world, because yeah. just they're so prominent on the global scene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I thought the worst part was, um, where I saw you, like, the... You know, like Canadians would sometimes, you know, they would meet their fellow like American expats in you know, like Korea or something like that, and just just assume they were there to, you know, defend America and just try to make them pay for all of America's imagined crimes. And it was, it was, yeah. these poor Americans are just always being cornered by angry Canadians and things. I don't know. Well, so, uh, and so I mean, what, what was what was life in Yukon like? How, how often do you get back to back to the Yukon is, is it uh, can you say the Yukon or is it like you know saying the Ukraine is highly insulting to Ukrainians so you have to say Ukraine like do you say Yukon or the Yukon I say the Yukon and most Yukoners say the Yukon okay. um and it, it's actually it's sort of a recent uh, initiative that's a that's a conspiracy theory I can get behind I'm not okay. sure why I have to remove the the from the Yukon but okay. um but yeah recently the the Yukon government or Yukon government um sort of officially struck the the out of the name and um and that's been sort of something they've been pressing for the last I don't know, five or ten years which seems baffling and unnecessary to me but uh <laughs> what do i know it, it does seem I, I like the mystique of uh, the in front of the yukon but uh right but yeah it's it's getting at first it really kind of hurt the ears to hear people just say yukon but now it's as more and more people say it it does get more and more familiar but uh i'll i will always say the yukon right yeah I mean, when I was growing up, I was always just Newfoundland, not like Newfoundland and Labrador. So now they, they, mm -hmm. they stress the Labrador part, you know. But yeah. back then, you almost never heard like the Labrador part. It was always Newfoundland. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So what, what was life like in Yukon back in back in the day? Um. Well, it's uh, I think it has a lot of similarities to to a lot of other places. Um. But uh, it's not it's not the barren north that a lot of people imagine when they right, think right. of. Uh, well, the Canadian Arctic. Um, it's you know it's subarctic. It's mountainous. There are uh, forests and mountains and uh, lakes and rivers. And you know it's quite it's quite nice. Whitehorse. Uh, I grew up just south of the capital city, Whitehorse mm -hmm. city. It has about had about twenty thousand people when I grew up. It's mm -hmm. now I think up to about thirty thousand. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's a great place. I mean, you can get out and sort of live a very rustic lifestyle. And you know, I would walk out my back door there and you can just walk up a mountain without you know so much as crossing another path let alone seeing a person um but then you can go into town and uh it's yeah it's especially now but it, it's a it's a modern town you can get all the the amenities you need and and so on that's in whitehorse some of the smaller communities are more limited in terms of what uh what they have right um but still i think uh, each place has its unique sort of character and uh good reasons to live there do you have polar bears there or is that more of like a northwest territory nunavut kind of yeah they're more in sort of well they're more in the arctic okay. um ecosystems and so we only have uh that tiny little patch of arctic coastline and mm -hmm. so uh we have a few polar bears but they're in the extreme north for the most part we just have uh, grizzly bears and black bears oh okay wow okay and and how how far are you from alaska what, what how, how far of a drive is it from say whitehorse to the uh Alaska border. Well, if you drive south from Whitehorse, uh, you hit Alaska in about two hours, um, oh, just into the into the Panhandle. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. And and you're down in, in Vancouver. Like if, for American listeners, Vancouver is probably the warmest part of Canada. I think in in winter time, it's 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 usually doesn't get super cold there. Yeah, the the cherry blossoms are coming out on the trees here already. Actually, and I saw some daffodils poking through the other day. So. Uh, it's very unlike the Yukon, where I think it was minus thirty last week. So yeah, yeah, because I remember living in Seattle, coming from Toronto, then moving to Seattle. It was like, um, yeah, I remember yeah, about March, I think the uh, trees would start to sort of bud, and and mm -hmm. they, they always put this uh, like cedar mulch around the trees in the springtime that just just smelled so nice, and, and it was really a the smell I really miss of sort of Seattle. But yeah, it, it's it's very it's a very different kind of way of life from the rest of Canada where, yeah, February or March, it starts to almost get spring-like. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, no, it's it's always a surprise here just to see flowers, you know, at, at, even at this time of year. Wow. Uh -huh. 
awesome. Okay. All right. Well, okay. I guess I could, I should let you go. And, um, so what's that, what's kind of in, in, in store for you in, in the future? Um, well, actually I'm looking at moving back to the Yukon. So funny. You should, should ask about oh, okay. it. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Focusing, uh, on some, some exploration up there and, uh, and seeing where else life takes me. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I seem to recall back in the, I wonder if it was like the nineties or the early 2000s, Yukon kind of became a kind of a bit of a, you know, a lot of sort of people in Ontario were kind of giving up the, uh, you know, the, the crazy Toronto urban life and, and, and mm -hmm. heading out to Yukon. Did, 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 or did you find that, that there was, there's sort of a bit of a, you know, sort of exodus of, you know, Toronto people to the Yukon looking for some idyllic life there? Yeah, that's, uh, that's ongoing. There are kind of waves of that. I think there's always a constant background of people coming to the Yukon. Uh, often it's, it's people who, go there just to check it out you know they go up for two weeks just to just to see it and uh they end up settling down there uh, having a family and having a life and next thing you know several decades have gone by oh that's great yeah do, do you what what is it like well, like winter time is it is it dark all year round in winter time or do you do you... it uh it depends on how far north you are but uh so most of the uh territory is below the arctic circle okay. um and uh, so we, anywhere below, we still get at least some sunlight in the wintertime. And actually, you know, that's one thing I compared to living in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of stretches, depending on the weather in Vancouver, you get more sunlight in the Yukon winter, even with like a five or four hour day right. um, than you do here in Vancouver, just because, you know, the sun comes up here for longer, but you just have gray, drizzly skies. And up yeah. there, you actually have a nice, crisp blue sky with the sun low on the horizon and yeah. If you get outside, you actually get a few hours of uh, sunlight in. Well, yeah, I remember when I moved, first moved to Seattle. I think I moved there in January, and I didn't see the sun until, like, March, I wow. think. Yeah. <laughs> it was weird because the sun comes. Did you find that in Vancouver, like, like, after, like, weeks and weeks of, you know, cloud, the sun comes out and people just go freaky? Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh... It changes everything. I mean, this is a totally different city when uh, when the sun's out versus when it's not. And yeah, when you get these long stretches where you just get a month without rain ceasing, then uh, yeah. it's pretty nice to see the sun again. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. You're, you know, the, I mean, this is a, a skeptical podcast. I, uh, have you uh, have you encountered skepticism much or? Uh... Um. Yeah. Uh... I have. I think I've always been sort of a, a little bit of a skeptic myself in a lot of a lot of things. Um, I remember getting in a friendly but heated argument with a, a guest at my brother's wedding on the veracity of the moon landings. Oh and, no! Uh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> well, as a geologist, I mean, you, you've got a certain you got a certain angle there, but uh, not not that would ever convince anybody. But yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, certainly, seeing um, kind of. Uh, I recall reading a few articles of uh, Skeptic Magazine, I think okay. it was called, um, when I was growing up as well. Right. I I can't recall much about it, but maybe maybe you know quite well. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, Skeptic Magazine for, for sure. Uh, I was going to say, I got, the reason I ask, I, one of my questions I always ask my guests is, you know, if you ever to find yourself at a you know, a skeptical convention and, and someone came up to you and said, you were on the conspiracy skeptic, weren't you? Uh, I, can I buy you a drink? What what uh, what uh, what drink should they buy you if someone ever hears you on this podcast and, and wants to buy you a drink? Well, a beer would uh, would be very welcome. Beer, what, what kind of beer? We're, we're Canadians now, so let's. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose it depends on the time of year, but uh, yeah, if it's uh, a long, dreary Vancouver winter or a cold Yukon winter, something uh, something dark would be good. Yeah. Ah, so there you go. Man of man, man of my taste. I always call I, I it's like some people like dark beer and some people mm -hmm. don't like dark beer and there are no there are no arguments you can give someone to make them like dark beer and I sort of realized, you know, a lot of arguments we get into are like that. It comes down to a matter of taste. I call it yeah. a dark beer argument. It's like it's like you can't no, you can't argue someone into liking dark beer and and Sometimes some arguments seem like they're like, oh, I'm just going to give them some facts and we'll clear this up. You know, you know, yeah, yeah. you have to sort of recognize when am I get, am I getting into a dark beer argument? Okay, it's a dark beer argument. It's a matter of taste. 
I, I'm just going to get out of this argument. There's no, there's no point in arguing this. Yeah, just like uh, a lot of conspiracy arguments, I suppose. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I always say that the, the only reason really to engage sometimes is just is uh, I, I like conspiracy people. Conspiracy people, they ask very sort of obtuse questions that make you go. Oh yeah, you know how do we know the Earth is like four point five billion years ago? I, I just mm. assume, and then you got to go and you got to learn all this stuff, right? And go, oh, that's how we know what we know. So they they have a great way of teasing out all the assumptions and forcing you to kind of like read these topics and figure out how we know what we know. And yeah, yeah, but then then step away, you know? Yeah, no, and yeah, I certainly don't mean to come down too hard on them in. Uh in any aspect of it. Uh, one, one thing that I did look at in my, in uh, the thesis a little bit was just how, you know, well, conspiracies are another, it's in a way it's a thesis, you know, it's a, yeah. it's another hypothesis for what's happening. And um, I, I suppose there's, you know, there's a line of, okay, when do you, when are you abandoning evidence and when are you kind of just talking crazy? But, uh, but especially in the field of meteoritics, there have been a lot of kind of wild ideas that were dismissed as just kind of, you know, a lone crazy man at the, at the microscope uh, that later came to uh, to be proven correct. And uh, so. So, yeah, I, I think conspiracies sort of rise out of the natural human um, desire for explanation, the same sort of force that's driving science forward. Right. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, again, um I suppose it comes down to a question of where you put your weight on the evidence and, yeah. and of course you've got to be yeah. logical. Or if you're willing to test your ideas, basically. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Very so something like yeah, that. So I think the distinction is that, you know, it's the, the, you know, scientists start with a hypothesis, whereas conspiracy people kind of start and end with the hypothesis. Well, I've explained mm -hmm. it. I'm just going to walk away now versus like, yeah. that's the beginning for, for science, right? Can yeah. You, how can we test this? And yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, I, I will. I will let you go. All right. Thank, okay. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Scott. That was, that was sort of very informative, and and this will help me too in this chapter in my book. This is this is this is good. All right. Well, thanks, Carl. Yeah. Um, well, I'm happy to get you a dark beer if I bump into you somewhere, and uh, curious to uh, check out your book when that comes out. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's you know it's it's slow going. I've got wife and a daughter and a career and all that sort of stuff and so mm. so uh, I, I do what i can when i can but uh but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah all right okay all right okay well have, have a good night there scott and thanks again okay all thanks right. you too all right take care bye Get it, you're young.